Hello. Um, my name is Steve Armstrong, and I'll be one of the teachers uh, on this retreat. And to my left is my wife, Kamala Masters, and uh, she has been a companion for a long time. And we've been teaching together for 15 years. So, thank you. And to my immediate right is uh, Deborah Radner Helzer, and she has taken uh, a short amount of time away from her full-time job, which is being a mom, in order to come and uh, assist us with this retreat. She was a, a long, or has been a long-term Dharma student and uh, practiced uh, here and in Asia as a nun for a while, as, as did Kamala. And uh, we're happy to have you here helping us. And to her right is Winnie Nazarko, who is also a long-term Dharma uh, student, uh, both here and on the West Coast. And she is in her final phase, I guess you'd say, of uh, training, after many years, training to teach, after many years of serving here at IMS uh, in different capacities. Also very happy to have you joining us for this retreat. I'm glad that you made the choice to spend your time in this way, coming to this retreat. Some of you are only here for the weekend. Many of you, here, most of you really, are here for the full nine days. And I say I'm glad because it's not easy to make a decision to leave all that you're familiar with and to leave your home, to leave your usual distractions, to come to a place where you, don't, you may not know many people and some of you may know what a retreat is like. Some of you may not know what a retreat <laughs> is like. But it's not always, uh, not always easy. But I think all of us uh, recognize that it can be and usually is really beneficial. So even though it's not easy, it is beneficial. It still is not, it still takes some commitment to make the decision to come to a retreat like this. And I'm very happy that you made that choice. Tonight I want to speak about a few things to help us all get on the same page and to help um, orient you to what we'll be doing here. I want to speak about um, your personal aspiration. I also want to speak about the format of the retreat. And I want to speak about the practice of awareness as a training that we'll be doing during this time. I want to offer some helpful tips or some helpful knowledge for practice. And then to point to the understanding that we can expect to grow gradually from our practice. 
it would be interesting to ask you, why are you here? And you might just ask yourself, why am I here? And as you know, there are many reasons that we might choose or that might propel us to come on a retreat like this. And for some of us, it might be just get me out of the house. Or maybe one of you, as I have seen before, received a gift certificate to do a retreat. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you really understand that awareness training or mindfulness meditation can be um, a skillful ally in dealing with stressful conditions. So maybe you come to learn uh, stress management. Or maybe you just want to relax. Or maybe it's the only time off you had and this is a good place to do it. Whether your aspiration is very mundane and quite ordinary, or whether it's very elevated and noble, maybe you really have an understanding and an aspiration for uh, wisdom or liberation or freedom. It has already taken a lot of effort a lot of commitment, a lot of reaffirmation of your decision to get this far. And we've only just begun. It's important to ask what your aspiration is because our aspiration is the direction we're going in life. And we may know what it is and we may be able to articulate it to ourselves or to another, or we may not. But we can know the direction we're going in our life by looking at our recent past. And recent past may be the last week or month or year or decade, but nevertheless, there is a clear direction being pointed to by our behavior. Which direction are you going? <coughs> We're here, but we can still take off in any of the 360 degrees of direction from this point. So it's important to ask the question and maybe even to find an answer or to articulate an answer to ourselves as to why I am here. And then to remember that to recall that frequently during your time here. Because the immediacy of conditions here and getting into the schedule and the meals and roommates and the whole routine of it, you will soon lose sight of where you've come from and what brought you here. And so we can very quickly just kind of fall into another routine that is not really fulfilling our aspiration. And so we want to recall that and bring it to mind again. What is it that brought me here? And what is the direction in my life? Where do I want to go? What 
what's important to you. Many of us are really skilled at multitasking. Our society and our culture and our lifestyle demands that we learn how to do a lot good enough to get by. And in this practice and during this retreat, we're going to take a look at another way of getting things done. And that is the anti-multitasking practice. There is nothing to do here. Just pay attention. Just be with your mind and your body and just observe what's happening. In some ways, we want to slow down so that we can really savor, savor and taste the very ordinary and mundane experiences that our life is made up of. Just the simple movements from here to there, or eating a simple meal, or doing a simple job like most of you have, and learning how to be fully present for these very ordinary experiences. Understanding that this is just a training. Training the mind to be present with the simplicity of the present moment in order to touch something more deeply within us, within this moment. As we, as we do that and as we uh, just kind of slow down and connect more intimately with our body and our mind and our <coughs> ourself and the energy of the whole community. Our interest in being here, what we feel we can learn from being here, shifts and changes ever so slightly if we pay attention. And our aspiration in being here can become clearer and can become more refined as we pay that kind of attention. The clarity of the mind and the clarity of our aspiration become more refined because we're paying attention. Without paying attention, things stay the same. But when we pay attention, we notice the subtlety of the shifts and changes and the direction of our aspiration. I've recently been reading a book on plate tectonics, which is, you know, the, the understanding of how the earth and the land masses of the earth became where they are. Who would have ever imagined that Boston is really connected to Africa? But by looking at the deep underlying structure of the earth, it can be confirmed. Our work here is something like a geological exploration of the mind, really going deeply into the mind and discovering the underlying patterns and the connections that are emerging <laughs> to propel our life 
and the way it's going. We can understand a lot about how we are in the world by looking at the deep structures of the mind and really coming to terms with them, accepting them as they are, and really finding a way of wise relationship to them. This is part of our work here. By now, you probably have read everything on the bulletin board, and you've looked at the schedule, and you've noticed that the schedule of a retreat like this is pretty simple. Wake up, sit, walk, eat, go to bed. And there's not much to do. The first time I went to a retreat, I didn't know what I was going to. It was a surprise. I thought I was going on some kind of a, something like a cruise or a holiday. And I got to the venue and I looked at the schedule at the door, sit, walk, sit, walk. You know, you wake up at five, sit, walk, sit, walk, eat, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, eat, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, eat, sit, walk, sit, you know, and somewhere around seven or eight o'clock, talk. And I thought, oh, great. At least we get an hour a day to talk. Little did I realize it wasn't that I was going to talk, is that I was going to listen. Well, how long does it take to kind of accept this is the way it is? Uh, for those of you who are new to the retreat, and I know there are some of you here for your first retreat, let me reassure you, the format of this retreat is time-tested over hundreds of retreats, thousands probably, and hundreds of thousands of retreatants just like yourself. This is not accidental. The schedule, the silence, the seclusion, the simplicity, it's time-tested. And if, and to the degree that you can accept, oh, this is, this is the way it is for now, uh, it can be really beneficial. The silence is, we call it noble silence, and what we mean by that is to limit your conversation to what will support you being here, doing the practice, and, and, and reaching some understanding being here. For some of you, it's going to be talking with us, asking questions, speaking with us, talking about your practice. Some of you may need to speak to your roommate tonight just to figure out who's going to set the alarm and what time it's going to go off and things like that. Or you may need to speak to the staff occasionally, you know, to find out about your yogi job or to clarify something. This is all fine. What we're most interested in limiting is the kind of casual conversation of chit-chat, the occasional cell phone call home to check on the cat, the dog, the partner, the news, twittering, tweetering, whatever it is. I'm too old for that one. Um, texting thing. Just let that go. Just to let your life be a little more simple and less full of chatter. Great support for really uh, looking within, discover what's there. Some of you know, or may know, uh, Bhante Gunaratna, another, he's a, he's a Buddhist monk from Sri Lanka, a great teacher, comes here and teaches. He is in the neighborhood 
doing his own self-retreat and practicing, you may see him out walking around on the road. Please let him have his seclusion and privacy and not stop to speak with him. Okay? Some of you may be here with your partner or your spouse. It's great. It is just fantastic to have that mutual interest and the ability to be here like that. Uh, Kamala and I have practiced together uh, in the past. What we found is that while there is a lot of joy, there's a lot of struggles, a lot of challenge in practice, and there's, there's a natural urge to want to share that with someone that you're close to, it really would be more beneficial if you could make a commitment to do the retreat alone. Get the support from your partner, just seeing that they're here also practicing, and just work with your own mind. At the end of the retreat, there's the rest of your life, lives, to share the joys and sorrows and trials, tribulations and challenges, and to work it out together, if you wish. But for the duration of your time here, we would invite you to, or encourage you to, consider uh, having a supportive silence between you. The schedule, the routine and the regularity of it, will allow the mind or encourage the mind to let go of trying to figure out what to do next. You'll see how difficult that is. The mind is busy so much of the time figuring out how to fit everything in, how to do everything. Well, here is simple. If you're sitting and you hear the bell, get up and walk. If you're walking and you hear the bell, come in to sit. It's really simple. However, you know, at times it can get complicated. You may have a check-in with one of us one day and have to fill your water bottle on the same day. <laughs> and it can get really complicated. So if you find your mind getting full and complicated and making a to-do list, let go. It really can be much simpler than that. Just look for simplicity. Look for a way to just make your life more simple here. Doing as little extra things, distractions, activities, plan, planning. And just follow the schedule as much as you can. The singularity of our mental activity will be limited to the Dharma. The teachings that we will be offering come from the Buddha. And we supplement it with some psychological understandings and some uh, commentaries on what the Buddha taught and other mm, useful commentaries for the work that we're doing. For the most part, it is a tremendous support for your practice to just keep your mind immersed in the Dharma, always pointing towards the way things are for you, looking to observe them, looking to understand them, and we will limit all of our input here through the instructions, the question and answers, and the Dharma talks, 
the guided meditations will all be limited to just the Dharma, just encouraging you, inspiring you, instructing you, informing you about the way it is and coming to a right relationship or a wise relationship with that. It may seem a very limited field of activity, of content. We're so used to being bombarded with just endless information, much of which we really don't need, that the mind is habituated to it. And when we enter seclusion like this and withdraw from all that stimulation, we can feel a little deprived for a day or so. We can feel a little bored or unstimulated. But let yourself get over that initial hump without looking for something to read or going to listen to your own tapes or going to read the book that you brought with you or going to the car to listen to the news or something like that. Just as much as possible, just let that go. We will be offering uh, instruction every day at the uh, sitting just after breakfast. And we would ask that you all please attend that sitting. Um, the instructions will cover a range of uh, practice uh, suggestions and techniques. And at the end of it, there'll be some opportunity each day to ask questions to clarify the instructions or to clarify your understandings or to get some understanding of an experience you've had. It can be really helpful. And I want to encourage those of you who may feel self-conscious or shy or a beginner. If you feel, if you have a question, don't be afraid to ask. Uh, our minds are not so different. And if you can articulate the question, often there are many others in the room who benefit from the answer or would ask the same question if they'd only thought of it or if they dared to or if they uh, you know, had the opportunity. So don't be afraid. Don't, don't limit yourself from really seeking clarification of what would be helpful for you to know. There is, because we'll be here as a community, a hundred or so of us here, another 20, 30 or more staff members, and there'll be occasional other people in the local community around. It's a big group of, of people, but it's really a very mm, we can live in harmony here because we are sincere and we're we're kind of all going in the same direction. We're We've made a commitment to live in harmony with one another and to live simply. And because of that, we can live in close quarters and feel safe. And it's really important in this work of opening the mind, opening the heart, and taking a look in there to feel safe and to know that uh, your, your privacy and your security are protected by everyone else around you. That's an important element of uh, the container of a retreat like this.
one of the conditions that supports that is to just accept as much as possible the way things are. To understand that the staff are here to serve us as best they can within the limits of their energy and the finances and their knowledge. They're not our personal slaves, they're not our personal attendants, they're not, a, they're not, they're just here to do the best they can to support us in our work. So as much as you can, just accept the food that's offered, the housing that's offered, the schedule that's offered, the yogi job that's offered, the teachings that are offered. See if you can find a way that all that is good enough and let go of all the other wishes or needs or um, creative ideas of how things could be different and better. I'm sure they could be, but we found over the years that the way things are here is, is definitely good enough for the work that we're doing. When the center opened here back in 76, even then there were scientists coming to study the effect of meditation on people who did retreats here. And I remember in 77 being at the three-month retreat when they set up this machine and tested people at the beginning of the three-month retreat. They practiced for three months. At the end of the three-month retreat, they tested them again, and those results have gone into the psychological pages of history, uh, having some effect. Now, today, there are still scientists studying the effects of mindfulness or meditation on the brain, on the mind, on our physical and mental well-being and health, and it is considerable. The documentation of the beneficial effects of sitting quietly, paying attention, is just growing mountainously weekly. That's all well and good, but it doesn't do the work for us. <laughs> we still have to do our own work. You know, we still have to take this mind that we've grown up with in all of its fixity and all of its habits and all of its beliefs and all of its, well, strengths and limitations and work with it, work with what we got. And to understand that the mind is plastic. The mind is like clay. You know, you take cold clay and try to work it and it just kind of falls apart and crumbles. When you ask your mind to do something that's unfamiliar, you too might just crumble. But as you work the mind and you, you warm it up and you, you gently uh, work it over, the mind becomes, just as clay, more pliable, more flexible, and able to do things and take shapes that were not previously possible. I say this because a lot of what we do here seems very ordinary. It seems very repetitious. It seems very mundane, and it is. But we should not minimize 
or underestimate the power of that repetition. Recent studies of um, those who are considered geniuses, genii, geniuses, genius, uh, reveals that what makes someone a genius? Well, first of all, to become an expert takes 10,000 hours. This is the agreed upon psychological standard to become an expert, an Olympic, you know, quality diver, 10,000 hours. To become a genius, it has been found that the single most important factor is to have a deliberate, strenuous, repetitive practice over a long period of time which is what we do here. Deliberate, strenuous, repetitive practice, in this case, over a long period of time. This is what makes the mind flexible, pliable, expands the mind to access what it's possible to experience as a human being. We live in a very narrow range of what it is possible to experience just through our conditioning growing up in the family of origin and the culture that we lived in and or that we live in and the range of our experiences and we just live in a little slice but the potential is still there in the mind if we're willing to undertake the practice the deliberate strenuous repetitive practice over a long period of time we can open the mind and it can access capacities that we only hear about in those that are considered exceptional. But every one of us has a potential exceptional mind to play with, to investigate, to learn from. Meditation is the work of the mind. It is knowing what the mind is doing, knowing what the mind is knowing, knowing how the mind is relating to what is going on. You can do that when you're sitting, when you're standing, when you're lying down, when you're walking, when you're doing your job, when you're in silence, when you're relaxed. It's paying attention to the mind. It is the work of the mind, even thinking. And the kind of thinking that supports your meditation is thinking about your practice, how to practice effectively. Why do I practice? What have I learned from my practice? What works, what doesn't? In thinking about our practice in this way, it's thinking. This is skillful thinking. Thinking that supports your meditation practice. None of us have ever said it, but somehow there's an assumption that often gets formed in students' minds that thinking is the enemy of meditation. That thinking is a no-no and you should just cut it off, get away from it, somehow avoid it, dismiss it, get rid of it. Not so. But just thinking about things that make you upset 
old memories, you know, the infinite number of plans that you'll never get a chance to live out, not particularly useful. So not all thinking supports practice, but some thinking can. As we pay attention to our experience, we're of course paying attention to our body, our mind, and our environment. What else is there? Our body, our mind, and our environment. We'll speak more about it for sure, but I want to just help you reframe your understanding of what we're doing here. While we're paying attention to the body, our body, what we experience is the nature of the body, the nature of the mind. It's not so different from one to the other. When I experience the breath breathing in, it's the body, it's the nature of the body to do that, to breathe. It's nothing particular and peculiar to me. If you experience the breath breathing in and breathing out, you'll have a very similar experience. We don't need to get too identified with our breath, our body, our pain, our aches, our whatever it is you experience in the body. It's pretty universal. We all experience all those things. They happen due to causes and conditions mostly outside of our immediate control. We're just here to experience it. To the extent that we can understand that we're experiencing and observing, knowing the experiences of the body, but not be too identified with them, then we really can gain in understanding. Understanding the skillful way of relating to the experiences of the body where we don't suffer where we don't struggle, where we don't get upset, where we don't get obsessed, where we just see, oh, this is the nature of the body. And so too with the mind. This is the nature of the mind. It's the nature of the mind to think. It's a natural activity of the mind to plan, to feel pleasant and unpleasant experiences, to plan for the future, to remember the past, to like and to dislike. These are natural activities of the mind. We're not trying to stop the natural activity of the mind. Please understand this. Meditation is not to stop the natural activity of the body or the natural activity of the mind. It's not to get rid of, it's not to avoid, it's not to dismiss, but it's to know clearly, oh, this is the nature of the body, and to establish a wise relationship to it where there's not struggling and there's not suffering. This is the nature of the, of the mind, or this is the natural activity of the mind. To do all of those things that you will discover your mind doing. Ah, this is natural activity. Don't let it bother you. But rather, recognize and accept. This is the way it is in the mind. This is the way it is in the body. And see if you can find a way of establishing a wise relationship to what you see happening. So that you're not caught in a, a struggle or um, a fear of or wishing things to be otherwise. This is the way it is. This is the way it is for now. Just to accept 
and to know this is the way it is for now is a great relief. To not take it so personal, like there's something wrong with you that you feel the way you feel, that your body feels the way it feels, that the mind feels the way it feels. Nothing wrong. This is the way it is in the body. This is the way it is in the mind. Many of you have, have done many retreats. Many of you have done retreats with many different teachers, many different traditions, many different techniques. We also will be offering teachings from our different teachers and the different teachings that we've heard and practiced. This is a great uh, benefit of living in 21st century West. We just have a tremendous uh, amount of information and teachings available to us from all kinds of spiritual traditions. But this is also an awesome responsibility. What of all that's available to us is useful, practical for us at this time? That's the challenge. What is it that actually works for you at this time. So we'll be offering instruction and different suggestions. If it sounds like something you'd like to try, try it and see for yourself if it works or not. Be willing to let go of your prior practices, other techniques, and to experiment to really look and see, is this a helpful, useful thing to do? I encourage you to do that, but I want to caution you also mm, against just becoming a technician, picking up a technique and just doing it in order to become good at it. Not particularly useful. Just becoming a technician that can do something perfect is not necessarily freeing. And so we want to use wisdom and understanding in how we apply all the techniques that we'll be, be offering. We have a great opportunity here to live in this intentional community with a common purpose to, to wake up, to observe, to support uh, each other in our efforts, in our practice. And I invite you to uh, commit your energies and your interest to this, to this practice here for this period of time. We've all found it extremely beneficial in our life. And I think you will, too. As my teacher, Saito Utejaniya, says, when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you'll naturally want to practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. To 
practice will help you to do well in life. That's why we practice. Again, I want to welcome you and thank you for making the, the choice to uh, undertake this compassionate activity for yourself. Thank you. Now, Kamala is going to speak about uh, the refuges and precepts which allow us all to be here in harmony and kind of heading in the same direction. to be here with all of you. I notice, I recognize some of you, and uh, some of you I don't know yet, but I'm looking forward to meeting with you personally in a group or in our individual interviews. I want to talk a little bit about the refuges and precepts that we usually do at the beginning of a retreat. One of the first things that is important to do when we start a period of silence and seclusion in a group together like this is to be able to offer each other um, a sense of safety, to be able to offer each other a sense of a commitment to live in harmony together. It's so important as we're living together in such close quarters like this, as Steve said. Just as we ourselves want to feel safe and protected when we know that so intimately for ourselves, we, we can know that for others, too. And one of the ways we do that in a retreat like this, traditionally, is by taking the refuges and the precepts. So let me talk about the precepts a little bit first. Um, the precepts are a training. They're a training in mindfulness, mindfulness in, in living in harmony. So we take these precepts in this way. I undertake the training to refrain from. And then it goes on in the precepts to say to refrain from harming any living being, or sometimes just very outright saying to refrain from killing. And that also implies the opposite, to protect life. The second uh, training and I want to point out that these are not commandments. These are trainings. And the way one of our teachers says it actually is like this. I take great care to undertake the training to refrain from. And the second one is refrain from stealing, refrain from taking what is not offered. So that way everybody can feel safe here, that we can leave things where they are and uh, we can just walk around with a sense of freedom, a sense of protection, a sense of feeling safe inside, and also the gift that we give each other of feeling safe. The third precept is to undertake the training 
to refrain from, during this period of time, any sexual activity. And that's not to say that anything is wrong with that, with this kind of energy, but it's just to say that for this period of time, we use our energy for going inside and really taking a look at our hearts, opening our hearts, training our minds. And um, it's also a way of respecting each other's uh, own sense of seclusion, their own sense of silence. Just in brief, oftentimes in retreat, uh, we have what we call VRs or Vipassana romances, where we, you know, kind of get connected or admire someone else. And there are ways that we, we might connect energetically or any other way by little note or a little speech. And um, this, this training is saying, please, you know, let's give respect to each other's sense of privacy and seclusion for the time that everybody came here for um, their commitment to do this retreat in this way. And also, of course, for our own protection. When we know this is so, then we feel like we can do our practice with a great sense of ease. I, I know just from being in a place myself of coming to retreats here for many years and um, you know, feeling the energy of people wanting to connect with me, um, it, friendship ways or any ways, it's, it's always um, a distraction in a way. So we, we want to be careful about that with our uh, refraining, um, doing our best to refrain from all of these things, harming any other being, stealing, sexual activity. And the fourth one is to undertake the training to refrain from speaking untruthfully. So this has um, a lot of protection, inbuilt protection, because we are in silence. We are in noble silence. And this helps us a lot. For many people, it's the scariest thing to come into a retreat. And, you know, we think, oh my God, I'm not going to talk for like a weekend or nine days. And this is unheard of. And our friends think we're crazy. You know, and our family, I know when I first went into uh, a retreat, my children thought, oh good, mom's going to come home and not talk so much anymore. They thought it was great, you know. Um, but this, this uh, refraining from speaking untruthfully is a really important training. One time I was in a retreat with my major teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, and he was very um, clear about speaking the truth. When we do speak, we, we speak what's going on in our practice with our teachers, and we're very clear and precise about this. Because, as he said to a group of us in that retreat when I was in Australia, this was long ago, about 30 years ago, he said, how can we realize the truth if we can't speak the truth? So this really rang so powerfully true with me. And um, I came to see being in retreats and really being precise about what I was saying at the time there was to speak, and also, when not speaking, to really maintain the silence, to maintain that noble silence. 
it's one of the things, as I began to say, people uh, who are new to retreats are a little fearful about, but it's one of the things when they leave retreats, they feel the most rejoiceful about that, wow, I could keep that silence and how clean the mind felt uh, afterwards. Just a sense of inner clarity that comes from keeping the noble silence. So keeping the noble silence could also mean, and it would really help if you refrain from reading anything. Even if you brought a Dharma book to read, it's really helpful to just pay attention to what the instructions are and to follow them, being mindful of when we're sitting, what's going on in the mind and the heart, when we're walking, just walking, when we're doing our eating, just eating, when we go to our rooms to rest, just what does it feel like for the body to be laying down and just resting. It really helps to um, just keep whatever is extraneous, whatever we don't need, keep that to the side. Oftentimes, even reading Dharma books can um, bring more information than we really need. It, it's, it's kind of not keeping in line with the simplicity that we want to maintain. So see what you can do with that that would help you. Writing um, can also be a distraction or can make things more complicated. When, you're, when we're giving a Dharma talk, of course, uh, you might want to write down some notes during the Dharma talk, or even at the end of the uh, 8.15 sitting in the morning, there's questions and answers, and you may want to uh, make some notes then. But while you're sitting here during the sitting periods, um, we really ask you, please, to refrain from writing. You might remember something, you know, oh, I've got to remember to do this afterwards, or, oh, I remember what the teacher said then, and you might want to write it down. If you can just wait, if it's important, you'll remember it later. Um, so with this many people in the hall, and it's so quiet, you know, we can hear each other a lot. It would be better not to write when we're doing our silent sitting here in the hall. And also, any kind of long writing, journal writing that you have to do, you want to do in your rooms. See what you can, um, see how you can renounce some of that. It will help you to keep things simple. Um, then, of course, the, Steve mentioned that if you have cell phones and things like that, the texting, and it, it's better if you can just respectfully renounce that for your own sake and for the sake of others. It, it really affects the container of the retreat. When one person does it and we see that person doing it, then it kind of gives per permission for more and more people to do it. And the container of the retreat gets um, a little ruffled and, and sometimes pretty ruffled by that. So we're, we're sensitive to that kind of thing because we want you to have a good retreat, not because we're strict or that, you know, we're giving orders, but it's, it's just because we know this is how it helps to be the best retreat for you. The last one is refraining uh, from taking any kind of 
intoxicants or drugs that will make the mind unclear. And this is mostly recreational kind of drugs and uh, things that we imbibe that make the mind unclear. Any medicines that you're taking, please uh, do not stop taking them during the retreat. Uh, whatever the doctor has prescribed, whatever it is, um, for the body, for the mind, please keep taking those medicines. We've had um, challenges when people stop taking their prescribed medications during retreats, and uh, this is not the place to make any changes in that. We'll be taking uh, three other precepts. Those are the five basic ones I just spoke of, and we'll be taking three other precepts for those of you who want to participate in a little more renunciation. And sometimes in a retreat of this size, oftentimes people want to, and there are some of you who have taken a lot longer retreats who want to do some more renunciation. And this is uh, about uh, the next one, the next uh, precept we take is to refrain from taking solid food after the noontime meal. After the noontime meal. This is a way not only of renunciation but simplicity. There are uh, several or many of us here who have done this where after the noontime meal we just take something that's um, liquid and it would be uh, served uh, in the afternoon time during tea time. Only liquids for those who want to take this six precept. It makes um, your, actually makes your meditation, it can be much easier, much more simple. When you know after the noontime meal, it may sound really foreign to a lot of you, but after the noontime meal when you realize, I don't have to think about food anymore. I can just do my practice. Um, some of you have a health concern and you must take food and so that's to be respected. But for some of you, you may want to try it out for just a day and see how it affects your practice. When we're not using all that energy to digest the food, it can really go into looking at our own minds and hearts more clearly. So this has been done for about 2,600 years already, and it's been pretty safe. You might want to try it out and see how it works for you. No, um, you don't have to do that. I just want to know how many of you are interested in taking uh, that precept to refrain from taking food after the noontime meal. Could you raise your hands? One, two, three, four. Okay, so about 20. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the seventh precept and the eighth precept have to do with things that would distract us. The seventh one is about singing, dancing, uh, entertainment, and adornments. Now, there's, unless you want to walk pretty far, there's no singing and dancing around here. <laughs> um, and the adornment thing and the wearing, you know, of we don't have any flower lays around here you can wear either. So it's pretty simple with this one. It's about distraction. You know, I remember when I went to my first retreats, 
I wanted to know how I looked, you know, how I was going in the hall. And after a while, it gets to the point where you just want to make sure you're wearing your clothes. <laughs> and you've got them on the right way, you know. Um, I've worn them inside out a lot of times. Just, you want to make sure that you're just living as simply as you can, and you don't need to figure out what earrings to wear if, you know, whether you're a man or a woman nowadays. And so we, we try to keep it simple, basically, another form of renunciation. The last one is refraining from sitting or, or laying down on high and luxurious beds. Well, there aren't any here, so we don't have to worry about that. However, um, I remember this one. I was reading somewhere in the ancient text that this one was made because um, people would have these high beds or these high chairs, and it would be so comfortable that you would just fall asleep. So that's why this one came about. So when you're getting too comfortable, like sometimes, you know, I would just be so comfortable in my chair or in my bed that I would just want to fall asleep and not have that mindfulness that helped me to notice moment to moment what was going on. Of course, there are a lot of times when we'll want to rest and go to sleep. So this last one you might, some of you might want to take by um, finding a chair that helps you to sit in, in a way that keeps you more alert. Most of the chairs are like that here, so no, no worries about that. So these are the precepts, and this is why we take them, how we take them, and we'll be chanting them in an ancient language, the language of Pali, which was the language that some of the teachings were recorded, some of the teachings of the Buddha were recorded in. Um, they weren't, uh, some of them were recorded in Sanskrit too, that's why I say uh, Pali was one of them. We will also take the refuges, and the refuges are another way of maintaining and establishing our sense of inner safety. And it's because when we realize that we're, all of us were basically on the same page when we take these refuges. Um, the refuges are taking refuge in the Buddha, and I'll explain that in a minute, in the Dhamma and in the Sangha. The Buddha, um, when we take refuges, refuge in the Buddha, doesn't mean that we're becoming a Buddhist, and I want to make that really clear. To understand what that really means, we have to understand what the word Buddha is. The Buddha was a human being, just like all of us, who um, realized his highest potential. And in a lot of ways, we can say for ourselves that we're here to realize a higher potential in ourselves. And um, this is what we're doing here, to realize some greater understanding of our hearts and our minds than we have understood before. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in that potential of ourselves. And that's how we can think of it. That's how we can frame it. Buddha means awakened one, the awakened one. So can we uh, take refuge in that for ourselves, in being awake to our lives, in being awake to our commitment? 
So also we'll be taking refuge in the Dhamma, taking refuge in the truth. The Dhamma means the way things are, the truth of how things are, the nature of reality. So when we take refuge in this, in the Dhamma, this is what it can mean for us. And the last is uh, taking refuge in the Sangha. And just colloquially, it means in, in our society, in our culture, it means taking refuge in each other, taking refuge in us as a Sangha, in a community of like-minded people with basically the same commitment to opening our hearts, training our minds. All of these provide an outer sense of safety and stability and an inner sense of safety and stability and will help us do our practice in a way where we can carry on with the most ease and the most respect for ourselves and others. So this is why we will do uh, this, we will take the refuges and precepts this evening to begin us together, and then every morning, uh, if you want to partake in that, we will uh, take the refuges and precepts every morning at the first morning sit. So now, um, I'm not sure if... Okay. Tomorrow we'll have chant sheets for you, but this morning, uh, this evening, Steve will lead us in the chanting, and it'll just be a, a call and response. So it'll be taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and also um, in the trainings, undertaking the trainings. So this is the way that we traditionally begin the retreat together is by formally taking the refuges and precepts. So uh, tonight and for the first few mornings of the retreat, I will chant one line or one phrase and you can repeat after me. And then after a couple of days, we'll all know how the song goes and we can chant in unison. And we will have chant sheets uh, tomorrow morning for all of you to be able to read along with what you're saying. We'll do the pay homage to the Buddha, do the refuges three times, and the precepts. And we'll all take the first five precepts, as Kamala mentioned. And for those who are taking the additional three precepts, refraining from solid food afternoon, uh, adornments, dancing, singing, entertainments, and high and luxurious beds and chairs, then just those people will take those additional three. And I'll remind you when you get there. Okay. So please repeat after me. <clears throat> namo, namo, tasa bhagavato, tasa bhagavato, arahato, arahato, sama sambuddhasa, sama sambuddhasa, namo, namo, tasa bhagavato, tasa bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, Sama Sambuddhasa, Namo, Namo, Tasa Bhagavato, Tasa Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa, 
Sammasambuddhasa Buddham Saranangga Chami Buddham Saranangga Chami Dhammam Saranangga Chami Dhammam Saranangga Chami Sangam Saranangga Chami Sangam Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Sangkhang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Sangkhang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Sangkhang Saranangga Chami Dutiampi Sangkhang Saranangga Chami Panatipata Panatipata Vairamani Vairamani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Adinadana Adinadana Vairamani Vairamani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Abramacharya Abramacharya Vairamani Vairamani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Musawada Musawada Vairamani Vairamani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Sura Maraya Sura Maraya Majapamadatana Majapamadatana Vairamani Vairamani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami And for those of you who will be taking the additional three precepts, please repeat after me. Vikala Bhojana Vikala Bhojana Vairamani Vairamani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Nacha Nacha Gita Gita Vadita Vadita Visukadasana Visukadasana Malaganda Malaganda Vilepana Vilepana Dharana Dharana Mandana Mandana Vibhusanathana Vibhusanathana Vairamani Vairamani Sikabadang Sikabadang Samadhyami Samadhyami Uchasayana Uchasayana 
Mahasayana, Mahasayana, Way Ramani, Way Ramani, Sika Badang, Sika Badang, Samadhyami, Samadhyami. And all of us can make this uh, aspiration. Idang me silang, Idang me silang, Magapalanyanasa, Magapalanyanasa, Pachayo, Pachayo, Hotu. Hotu. As Kamala mentioned, each morning at the sitting before breakfast, we will take these refuges and precepts again. Each day is a way of uh, reaffirming our uh, commitment and re-acknowledging our aspiration. But for the time being, maybe we should get some rest. <laughs> okay. Thank you all. Uh, there'll be a bell in the morning at 5 o'clock. That's okay. And at 5.30, we'll come to sit. At 6.30, there'll be breakfast, and we'll be well into the day. See you then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.